I want to begin this afternoon by telling you some things we do not believe. We do not believe that the Jews in the land of Israel are Khazars or Kenites. We do not believe that because we identify the United States and the British Commonwealth of Nations as a part of the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel, that we are white supremacists or survivalists, or that we are better than any other race of people on the face of the earth. We do not believe that the kingdom of God is on this earth at this time. We do not believe that it was fulfilled in the establishment of the British Empire. There are many other things I could tell you that we do not believe, and the reasons for doing so is because many of us don't realize that while we were observing the Feast of Tabernacles at the various U.S. feast sites and around the world, there were others in this country and elsewhere observing the Feast of Tabernacles. They also understand the weekly Sabbath. They accept the doctrine of the identity of the so-called Lost Ten Tribes of Israel, and they are survivalists. They believe in various conspiracy theories. I've had a lot of their literature sent past my desk. It usually ends up in the round file. That's the wastebasket. Some of it goes on to Mr. Vance Stinson, who keeps certain records for our archives and our gradually growing library and for our research department when we have to deal with these and other subjects. It would surprise you to read some of the literature from these people who link together, believe it or not, these recent oil spills in New Jersey and Houston to automobile wrecks or fires or an assassination in Seattle or someplace else all over the country and claim that it is a conspiracy by a certain group of Jews who are really secretly ruling the world. They believe in strange things like the conspiracy involving David Rockefeller and the Chase Manhattan Bank and others and the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Convention and all sorts of conspiracy theories involving big computers in Belgium like Big Brother that are keeping track of us. And they're excited about things like the mark of the beast and a new cashless society and the implants of certain chips inside the skin of your hand or your forehead that will impose upon you the mark of the beast. Have you ever really thought why the rabble who killed Christ became as vehement and as outraged and as self-righteously angry as they appeared? The rabble that killed Christ were, by and large, dupes of a propaganda effort on the part of the Sanhedrin and a group of the Pharisees who made Christ out to be anything except what he really was. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but Christ was crucified for all the wrong reasons. There was not a right reason, of course, but the people who put Christ to death did so because they claimed he had said he was going to destroy the temple. They did so because they believed he was there to overthrow the government and to set himself up as some king. They believed that he was the head of a group of revolutionaries who was going to, if necessary, violently overthrow the government. They also believed that religiously he was a blasphemer. He'd been called that by the Sanhedrin, by leading members of the Pharisees for virtually the entirety of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. 
They claimed that he blasphemed, making himself equal with God. They said that he claimed he would destroy the temple. They cited his illegitimacy and claimed that he was an illegitimate child. And when they worked themselves up into this fever pitch of hatred and frenzy, they murdered the Son of God, not because any of them involved in that activity thought he was the Son of God, or even thought he might be the Son of God. When Pilate's half-Jewish wife told him about her dream, he got scared and he washed his hands and wanted nothing further to do with it. Now, perhaps some of the leaders in the Sanhedrin who had been there when he stooped and wrote some names in the dust of the floor of the temple, some of those who had been locked in controversy with him publicly on many occasions and had even taken up stones to try to kill him when he had actually been able to conceal himself in the melee and pull the hood over his face and with his disciples to just pass right on through their midst and escape with his life. That even happened the very first attempt at his public ministry up in Nazareth where he had grown up as a boy. And they failed on many occasions. It was not that they just tried to kill Christ once. They tried to kill him over and over again. But God did not allow it until a certain time. And then they killed Christ. Remember what Christ told his disciples. We'll turn to that in the book of John. We nearly always read some of these scriptures at about the Passover time. And in John, the 16th chapter, he said, These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Now, you can read today churches, if you wish, but synagogue, because they were the religious authorities in charge of the religious system at that time. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever kills you will think that he does God service. We today, especially in the Protestant world, can read all sorts of books and documents about the Spanish Inquisition. We can read the history of those times back in the 11th and the 12th and even the 16th century. We can read of times when in early colonial America they burned witches in Salem, Massachusetts. We can read of all of the stories of how people would rise to their full self-righteous, vain, egotistical heights claim themselves to be God's own sword, the sword of the Lord, God's own judging body, and the most self-righteous people on the face of the earth. And they were going to expunge sin, either from a human being who allegedly was filled with all sorts of heresies, or from a whole society. I think we're all aware of the centuries of struggles where religion was largely enforced with the edge of the sword and later on with the crossbow or the longbow or the bullet, and not necessarily by preaching the word. Countless millions have died in the name of religion, and we're all very well aware of that. But I don't think most of us had ever applied this scripture in its literal implications to us and to the fact that Jesus says in the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew, that a part of the Great Tribulation is the martyrdom of saints. I think we tend to think that the martyrdom of saints is going to be people who know they're killing a saint, and the saint is going to be crucified or, or butchered or shot or whatever, and he'll be standing there preaching this wonderful message like Stephen did. Oh, I see Christ at the right hand of the Father. And all of these dirty rabble are out there putting to, together this, putting to death this righteous man killing this righteous man. That isn't it. 
the mob thinks they are righteous and they think they are killing the rabble. They think they're putting to, to death a person who richly deserves it. That's what they thought in the case of Jesus Christ. They thought they were putting together a criminal, a man who had threatened to destroy the temple. The time is going to come in the future when it says the father will deliver up the son to death, the mother the daughter, the father-in-law the son-in-law, children their own parents, said Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. Now what will they point to? Not some visible sign. I've said that many people who understand the truth of God tend to hide their light. And I've talked about how we ought to have the names and telephone numbers and addresses of the places of our meetings and of our local pastors in the white and the yellow pages all over the country. And those of the ministry who might hear this tape, please be sure to do that. I had a couple of people come up to me at the Feast of Tabernacles, I think out in California or elsewhere, and I mentioned it in passing, and they said, well, I don't think that our group has its telephone number in the in the white or the yellow pages where we live. And I said, oh, is that white? Well, it should be. If they can afford it, they ought to take out a small little ad. And I said they ought to put Church of God International and worship services, Sabbath, at such and such a place, and put the number of the pastor there. If it's not a chartered church, then I think I would want to have a host group or someone check with us here at the home office in Tyler and uh, see what the, the procedure ought to be for that. Uh, we don't want people just putting their names in the telephone directory without necessarily authorization. But I'm saying that there's no reason to hide. There no, there's no reason to operate like a secret society. Do you see what that communicates to other people around you? Let me take you back many, many years ago when as a fledgling newcomer to the church, even though my father had raised up the church when I was a baby boy, I'd come out of the Navy, and I'd finally been converted and baptized and become a member of God's church. We had some apartments, which way later became incorporated into Ambassador College, that were directly across the street from the library building. And elderly retired people, many of them quite wealthy, from Pasadena, California, lived in that neighborhood. On any given Christmas day, or any given Sunday, the mowers and the people with the rakes were busy on our grounds. We got some complaints, and I began to think about it seriously. I thought, now wait a minute. Look at the example we're setting here. Because we believe that Christmas has its origins in paganism, our student body was out there on December 25th on Christmas Day mowing the lawn, just rubbing other people's faces in it. I went to my father one day and I said, Dad, where is our flagpole? He looked at me in amazement. We didn't have a flagpole. And I said, well, would there be anything wrong with, with us putting up a flagpole? I said, are not we grateful and thankful for being in the United States of America? And couldn't we have as an institution an institutional flagpole out in front of the library building with the American flag fluttering in the breeze? Anyway, I talked to him at some length. I got his permission, and in due time, Jack Elliott ordered a flagpole, and we put the American flag up. Along about that time, in the period of McCarthyism, anything you didn't understand, didn't matter what its tenets, faiths, or beliefs, anything you didn't understand was a commie, pinko fellow traveler, right? Everybody that was, you know, persona non grata was a commie, 
the whole world said, you're a communist. They didn't know how to pronounce it, and half the people in our society didn't even know what it was. They just knew that the big boogeyman of the 50s in the McCarthy period was the communists. Well, the daily worker began coming to my office. I looked at that, and I got absolutely outraged at some of its articles and its cartoons. I sat down, I wrote a letter back to the editor, and I said, you can take this trash and put it, you know, in your, in your trash bin. Don't send it here. I don't want it anymore. He got real mad at my letter, called me a young whippersnapper, and wrote it back, refused to cancel it. I promptly sent him a whole box full of our literature, put him on the plain truth, and said, since you refused to cancel your subscription, I will gratefully use every one of it that comes to my door, rolled up, never even open it, and add it to my winter supply of cordwood for burning in my fireplace. I hope you enjoy this mutual exchange of literature. I am yours sincerely, Garner Ted Armstrong. Fired off a copy to the Los Angeles office of the FBI. Why did I do that? Then I sat down and wrote a letter to J. Edgar Hoover, and I sent him samples of our doctrines and told him about my correspondence and sent him a copy of it with a daily worker. Why did I do that? Then I also went to my dad at about that same time and said, we need a series of articles in the Plain Truth magazine, and we need a booklet explaining and exposing the teachings of Lenin and Engels and Marx. We need to educate people about what is communism and what's wrong with it and show them communists we are not. Now, by its basic tenet and one of the ten main documents, you might say, or statements of the Communist Manifesto, they believe that religion is the opiate of the public and they are essentially atheistic. So anybody who says a religious organization who is preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and believes in living a Christian life and in receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and baptism, the laying on of hands and so on, cannot be a communist organization. Although, believe it or not, the communists did infiltrate certain church organizations and aid, which was actually purchasing guns, in communist countries was sometimes finding its way through church organizations in this country. A Dr. Carl McIntyre, while he was still alive, was a staunch defender of the ultra-right-wingers and a person who went around trying to ferret out communist connections in religious organizations. I got a letter back from J. Edgar Hoover. I still have it. And I knew that we, therefore, were on record as stating, no, we're not communists and we have nothing to do with communism. I did that for the protection of the Church of God. Now, the day before yesterday, I think it was, I was mentioning to Mr. Van Stinson that I think it is time that we begin to write some articles about some of these fringe survivalist organizations and their doctrines and disassociate ourselves from those who believe in various conspiracy theories, but especially those who have racist overtones in their literature and their message, and who are the mongers of hate. I was shocked when I saw the tremendous percentage of the vote for this ex-Ku Klux Klansman down in Louisiana. And let me tell you something. Maybe there will not be a national race war, but when you look at your news at what has been happening in New York City and in some of the cities of this country, the gangs here and there, that are largely ethnic, 
minority gangs preying upon each other, but once in a while spilling over into other communities. 18, 20, 24, 17 bodies lying in the streets on any given day in New York or Los Angeles. The subway killings by the subway vigilante, vigilante sort of brought it all to the National Four some few years ago, and then that incredible thing in Boston when they blamed the wrong man in the entire city went absolutely crazy with racial fears and hatreds. Let me tell you that in pockets here and there in this country, there are going to be violent racial wars. Those who are going to precipitate it are going to largely be white supremacists, racists, survivalists with religious overtones and religious organizations who are going to be waging war against blacks, against Chicanos, against Orientals, the peoples of other racial minorities, and especially, you guessed it, the Jews. I could write, and I have the literature, to a publishing company out in La Costa, California, and I could show you the most beautiful books, that thick, hardback, full-color jacket, that are written by former Waffen-SS and Luftwaffe and Wehrmacht officers and others high in the Nazi chain of command and other Germans, revisionists all, who have revised World War II history, books that will tell you that Adolf Hitler never killed a single Jew, books that will show you there was a complete conspiracy to get the emaciated bodies of Polish soldiers or other people and dress them up in prison garb and claim that they were Jewish, Remember the sensational trial where some of these people were actually taken to trial in the United States and some judge and a jury in the United States had to decide all over again when there must be a million tons of evidence that the Holocaust indeed did occur. And that was less than, I think, 15 years ago. It's a very short period of time ago, historically. We don't have the faintest concept how many of these people there are. They are everywhere. They are everywhere. I would not doubt for an instant but what there are little cultic groups around these environs in the East Texas Piney Woods in Tyler and other small towns. They're in northern Minnesota. A friend of ours who is an elder in this church sits down and has a cup of coffee every Sunday morning with one of these people who talks hatred against the Jews, the blacks, the Chicanos, and the Orientals who looks upon the United States as supposedly Manasseh, who is to be kept racially pure and says that all of these other people in here are an impurity and they are an effrontery to God and they ought to be sent back where they came from or better yet, annihilated, exterminated. They are preaching the same kind of hatred that Hitler and his lieutenants preached. Extermination of the Jews. Now, it doesn't take very much of that kind of preaching to really turn on some Iranian student in the United States or an Egyptian or a Syrian or anybody else from some of the Arabic countries who love to hear hatred against the Jews. I wonder if we understand the real reason for the UN condemnation of Israel and the West Wall riots. Isn't it funny how the very first little sketchy news reports came out with a statement that some of the ultra-right-wing Orthodox Jews had marched up to that wall attempting to lay a cornerstone for a temple? And from then on, I've never heard CNN 
or ABC or anybody else say one word about what precipitated that riot. The young Arabs came out there starting to throw stones. And you pick up a stone about that big, it's probably going to hurt somebody. And they injured some people real seriously. A real melee got going, and the Israelis and the Arabs were fighting each other. And along come the troops, and it's just like Kent State ten times over. They didn't kill two or three, they killed, what was it, uh, something like 20-some, 20 21 or two, and injured something like 150 with real bullets and just shot them down. Now that is, of course, a major flap in world news right now and is being linked together to the very weak position of George Bush in the United States with regard to Operation Desert Shield, where unfortunately, and had he had a real astute Israeli advisor somewhere to tell him don't do that, he wouldn't have made that move, to try to force Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait under the aegis of UN resolutions. Because Resolution 242 and 244 call for the abandonment of East Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip, and they have never been enforced by any power or any agglomeration of power under the auspices of the United Nations. Now we are over in Saudi Arabia trying to enforce a UN resolution, and look at it from the standpoint of the Arabs, that has absolutely no more force or power, is of any more import than Resolution 242 or 244, which call for the Israeli evacuation of what are occupied territories. So our position under the banner of the UN is weak. It was really unfortunate that George Bush did that because the linkage of those two things was inevitable by anybody who was really thinking over there in the Middle East. So the reason I want to generate some of those articles and to go on record, as I did out of this pulpit a moment ago, with a tape program and with the fact that my remarks are being both video and audio recorded, that we don't believe in this survivalist business and in white supremacy, and that the strangers that are in this United States of America that, after all, is not under our control, that are here by their hundreds of thousands, the boat people from Vietnam, the people flooding in from Singapore, Malaysia, from Taiwan, from uh, China, from all over the world, who are finding safe haven in the United States, tens of thousands of them from Central America because of protracted civil war and guerrilla warfare down there, where we have thousands of people from Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and so on in the United States, and they seek a free life here, and our government allows that, and the Church of God is not the government of God on this earth at this time to right every wrong, to restore every person to his rightful inheritance, to actually put into force and effect the laws of God as they will be enforced during the millennium. People who make the mistake of preaching government, law, the rule of God, and get very, very deeply into how God is going to administer his laws in the millennium, tend to very quickly see this spilling off into the church. In the first place you, where you will see that government and where you will see it cracking down and really just ruling people's lives to the point they have no, no personal uh, accountability, no personal leeway for decision-making, no individuality, no free choice, no permission to disagree or to believe something slightly differently from the party line. And eventually you will have a rigid hierarchy that will emerge 
and will begin to claim we are God's government. We're the sword of the Lord. We're here to judge and to decide and to administer justice and judgment within the church. And then, little by little, they will begin to let this spill over into the community. I remember a young cock of the walk, newly ordained minister many years ago, like little Lord Fauntleroy, who broke the speed limit. And he'd been studying his Bible, and he thought all filled and imbued with power. He had the little bottle of oil in his hip pocket. He could go anoint people and call down the power of God to heal people. So he looked up at the traffic cop, and he said, You have no power over me except as God, the God that I serve, allows. Now, what a stupid statement for a man to make who'd just broken the law. But his vanity over who he was and what he thought about himself in relationship to God made him try to put down the traffic cop when the traffic cop's just doing his duty, arresting a speeding car. It shows you the lengths to which some people can go. I want you to understand that God's church is not saddled with the responsibility to preach the last word on the subject of race. We are not commissioned to sort out where everybody belongs. Our calling and our commission is to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God without favor as a witness and a warning to all the world, and then shall the end come. Let me show you what a part of that gospel is. A part of that gospel is that the way of salvation is open to all races, and especially to the Gentiles, who came swarming into the early New Testament church in their groves and in their hundreds when the Jews rejected it and left it behind. If we'll go to the tenth chapter of the book of Acts, you know, the apostle Peter had a lot of lessons to learn, and we can go back and look at what happened to him at the time that he said, I am ready to die with you and go to the cross with you and so on. And then he turned and fled at the last moment when Christ was taken and was to be crucified. There was a certain man in Caesarea, Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman, of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all of his house and gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And he saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying, Cornelius. And he looked on him, and he was afraid, and said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and your alms are come up for a memorial before God. Now, here's a man. Let's get every bit of lesson we can out of this in the light of what we've always thought, heard, or been taught. Here's a man who was unauthorized, right? He's a Roman, right? He's a soldier, right? What do you mean his prayers are heard? You know, I've actually heard ministers tell people, and I've had people come and tell me that their ministers told them that God does not hear the prayers of people prior to the time that they become a member of the church and are baptized and converted and so on. Well, then how can they pray for forgiveness, and how can they be granted the gift of repentance, and how they can they come to God in the very first place, when even repentance is a gift of God? Here was a man who, aside from any contact with God's church, any apostle, any minister, had an angel speak to him. How many of all of us righteous people in God's church have had an angel speak to us? I never have. I don't want to. It would probably scare me half to death. I don't want that to happen. I see examples where angels spoke to people and they just 
absolutely were paralyzed. And the angel had to say, get up, it's okay. I, you know, I'm not God, I'm an angel sent with a message. Just scared them stiff as a board. No, I've never had an angel appear to me. This man did, and a prayer was received, and he was told, your prayers and your alms are come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside, and he will tell you what you ought to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. These things are happening absolutely independently of each other, but God is bringing them to pass. The one did not precipitate the other. They are divinely arranged. And he became very hungry, and he thought, well, I'm going to eat. Maybe he even called down, or maybe they called up to the parapet and said, we're fixing dinner. While they made ready, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven open, and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners, like a big bag coming down in the cargo of a, or the cargo hold of a big ship, and let down to the earth wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He didn't know who the voice was. It isn't that Peter was, was uh, arguing with God Almighty. He just heard a voice. And he, of course, called because he could see that it was a vision, and it was, he was in a trance state and thought that it was either an angelic messenger or someone of great authority. So he spoke politely, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common, that is ceremonially defiled or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God has cleansed, that call not thou common. What God hath cleansed. This was done three times, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now Peter doubted himself what this vision that he had seen should mean, didn't really understand it. Behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, and called and asked whether Simon, Peter, was lodged there. And while Peter thought on the vision, still trying to figure it out, what is all of that about, what does it mean, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise therefore, and get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent to him from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. Why are you come? What is the cause wherefore you are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, and one that fears God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by an holy angel to send for you unto his house, and to hear words of you. Then he called him in, and locked them in, and lodged them. And on the morrow Peter went away with them. He had to believe it, and of course, no doubt, his brain was really busy imagining now what in the world this could all mean, but he was not about to be disobedient. He was going to go and, and see. His curiosity, no doubt, got the better of him, and he was afraid not to. And the morrow after, they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them and called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. What a sign of humility. Now, Peter did not stand there and, like a pope, you know, take off his sandal and say, go ahead, kiss my foot or kiss my ring, but instead took him by the shoulder or the arm 
saying, Stand up, I am a man just like you are. Don't bow down before me and worship me. I'm not fit to be worshipped. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, You know how it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, in passing, utterly irrelevant to my subject, I'm sure many of you realize that those Protestant and or Catholic churches and scholars who are trying to justify the eating of bottom-dwelling things from crabs, shrimp, lobsters, and abalones to creeping, crawling things or tree-climbing things, they don't eat bats, but they do eat squirrels and so on, uh, want to try to take the animals in the sheet as being symbolic of all unclean meats, saying you can eat carrion eaters, but they don't eat that. They make certain, you know, adjustments. They, they, they don't necessarily eat bats and vultures, but they do want to eat other creatures that God says are unclean. This has nothing to do with that at all. The purpose for the vision is very clear right here. God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. The creatures and animals were merely a symbol to teach Peter that no human being of any color, size, or shape, or race, or language is unclean in God's sight. Wherefore, I came unto you without gainsaying, as soon as I was sent for, and I asked therefore, for what intent have you sent for me? And Cornelius said four days ago, and he relates that I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, your prayer is heard, and your alms are had in remembrance of the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and he related the entire thing, and he will come and speak to you. Verse 33, Immediately I sent, and you have done well, that you are come. Now therefore we are all here present before God to hear whatever God has commanded you to tell us. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Now Peter still didn't shed every bit of his former feelings of antagonism toward swarthy-skinned Gentiles when he created quite a flap, probably at the Feast of Tabernacles, in the southern churches of Iconium, Lystra, or Derby, where they had come together. And it's mentioned in the last part of the first and most of the second chapter of the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul has said he had to rebuke Peter before all the people who were there because Peter had seen a group of a delegate of Jews from Jerusalem, a delegation, come into that tent where they were all eating in the common place where they were serving like a cafeteria, and had jumped up from a table of Gentiles and gone over and sat down with the Jews. It hurt a lot of people's feelings. They got upset, as well they might. It created quite a flap. Paul actually, if you can imagine what a terrible thing this would be, how embarrassing would it be for Ron Dart and I at a Feast of Tabernacles to seemingly, so far as other people are, are able to detect, get into an argument where one or the other of I is saying, I have to rebuke you, you're wrong, and say it publicly before the church. Bad news barns, right? I mean, that would really make people feel pretty weird. It happened. There was room in the New Testament church of God for it to happen. Indeed, it had to happen. But that can't happen, can it? in a vertical hierarchy. When does any colonel chew out any general and get away with it 
especially with an audience present of enlisted men, let alone in private. He just doesn't, does he? So had there been a vertical hierarchy with Peter over Paul, Paul could not have rebuked Peter to his face before the entire church and said, how is it you being a Jew, and so on, and then went through that whole uh, story that you can read in, in the second chapter of the book of Galatians. Of a truth, I perceive. Do you perceive this? I perceive it. Do you? Peter did. God does. God's converted Christians do. God's ministry does. God's people do. Do you? Do you perceive that God is no respecter of persons? But in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Many years ago, Dr. Benjamin Ray, when he was still alive, and I were made aware that there was a group in the nation of Chile we had never heard of before in our lives who spoke obviously the Latin or the Spanish tongue and through their own prayer and Bible study had come to understand the weekly Sabbath and the annual holy days and had heard of no church in the entire world anywhere who did by themselves unilaterally had come to that knowledge of the truth and were observing the Feast of Tabernacles. I found to my amazement that in the little tiny nation of San Marino, if you know where that is, atop a little narrow mountain range, just one little pocket, a little tiny nation, one of the little Puccian nations of Europe in the confines of larger Italy, there were a group of people who are the latter-day descendants of the Valdenses who apparently observe some of the same customs and doctrines we do. It's amazing. So it says here very clearly that in every nation he has those that fear him and work righteousness and is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ or by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hung on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, reminiscent of the very same words in the second chapter of the book of Acts that he preached on the day of Pentecost. Not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. I won't read every bit of that, but notice in verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed, those who were Jews, were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles, Romans and friends and kin of Cornelius, who was a Roman, also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. For they heard them speak with languages and magnify God, then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. The land of Judea in that century, during the time of Christ, was in a sense a melting pot of various races. First of all, at any given time, especially on the holy day seasons, there were representatives of 20, 30, or more nationalities and races, some of whom were proselytes, most of whom were Jews, some of them 
had intermarried with other people just like today. When you go to Israel, you will see Yemenitish Jews, Russian Jews, Moroccan Jews, American Jews, Jewish Jews, etc. During the pilgrimages at the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, there were tens of thousands who came flooding into Jerusalem, just like today. They go to Bethlehem at Christmas time, and during that time there were all these races extant. Are you aware of who were the Samaritans, the Good Samaritan? They were the peoples who were dark-skinned and swarthy, probably of Hamitic descent, who came down into that land during the days when Shalmaneser and later on the Babylonians followed the same process that Hitler did of uprooting whole populaces and transplanting them into another land. And that area called Samaria was inhabited by Gentiles, largely avoided by the Jewish population, but it was in the confines of the nation we know of as Israel today. Just like today, there are Palestinian Arabs and other Arabs and Jews and various races of Jews, all the way from very dark and swarthy to very light and blonde-skinned in the land of Israel. So these people were given God's Holy Spirit. Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they prayed for him to tarry certain days. Now, the entire furor that began to grip the New Testament church and the struggle that began to come about as a result of the reaction against these various influxes of Gentiles is what church history is all about for the next three or more centuries. Eventually, there were far more Gentiles than Jews. And eventually that became a reaction against Judaism and the Jewish element. And eventually that led to, during the days of Constantine and the famous Council of Laodicea and the Council of Nicaea, to say that Christians should no longer Judaize by observing the Passover on the 14th of Nisan, and the weekly Sabbath was out, and the Passover on the 14th was out, and Easter was in, and Sunday was in, and that gradually metamorphosed or developing church of the 2nd and 3rd centuries was shedding everything that remotely smacked of what they thought was Judaism, which in fact was the doctrine of Christ and the early apostles. I think you all know what the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians, the third chapter. I want to turn over to that right quickly. And then we're going to, to uh, conclude very quickly by getting just a portion of Romans 11. Let me just show you that. I think all of you know that we are a church of many different races. We are a church who has, I'm trying to think right now, we have a... Well, I'll say Chicano, but Manuel will have to forgive me because I don't think his roots are Mexico. They may be from down further in Central America. Manuel uh, is uh, a Latin by birth and by race and by his, his actual native tongue. Uh, Dr. David Antion is pure Syrian. His nearest kin are from Syria. He's American by culture. We have several black ministers. I'm thinking of the pastors of a couple of churches, Dr. James Ricks, and I'm thinking, of course, of Mr. Bronson James, who is right now preaching down in Houston today, and others. We have quite a large number of blacks, of Chicanos. We have a handful of Oriental people, not very many, but we are a mixture in the Church of God International. Overseas, here and there, we have whole churches that are made up of Gentile populations, such as Jamaica, where they are 100% black, wonderful, warm-hearted, converted, good people 
where we have people who are basically of the the uh, Polynesian and the Southeast Asian mixtures that make up the peoples called Filipinos all over the Philippine Islands who again are very warm and loving and friendly and beautifully converted Christian people but whose roots racially and linguistically, culturally, socially are utterly different from ours. Now because this racial flap came up in the Church of God right at the Feast of Tabernacles Paul had to rebuke Peter before his face. He said in verse 11, when Peter, I'll read in the second chapter of the book of Galatians and verse 11, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before certain ones, as it should read, came from James, a delegation from Jerusalem, he, Peter, did eat with a Gentile. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas was carried away. So this was a real problem. Some of those feelings that they had were still buried deep beneath their exteriors. And for all their statements of love and camaraderie and brotherhood, when it came to a crisis, those subliminal, subdued feelings came out. Now, we deal with that in our society every day, every single day. We are a racial mixture in the United States. Racial tensions are extremely high in certain pockets of our country here and there, especially in some of the big cities like Los Angeles, New York, and elsewhere. And if we are not careful as a people, we will allow those feelings to dictate our actions at some future time. And furthermore, if we're not taking care as an institution, as an organization, we could end up not only being persecuted, but we could get ourselves killed for all the wrong reasons. I don't want to be put to death because people claim I hate the blacks when one of my closest, dearest personal friends is Bronson James, when I do not have the slightest vestiges of racism that discolors my heart inside my mind. I don't want to die as a racist. But what happens? When little enclaves of survivalists are loading Coke bottles with gasoline, are digging holes in the ground and stocking submachine guns and thousands of rounds of ammunition and hand grenades and bombs and bazookas and who knows what else, and are keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, I think one group, Vance told me, invited Mr. Vance Stinson to come to their feast as a guest minister and preach to them. And they may end up being the perpetrators of racial violence and take lives and kill people in the future. And there will be others who will react in the other minority communities against anyone who believes in the America is Israel doctrine and lump them all together and see them as a racist bunch of bigots just like the Ku Klux Klan. So I think it's important that we go on record that you take a look at your own heart, see where you stand with regard to those issues, because they are going to come up and we will have to deal with them. Now, everything that he said in the second chapter, clear down to where he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, is apparently a first-person quotation in what he said to Peter face-to-face -face before the Galatian churches. Chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And then he said, Are you so foolish? Verse 3, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Are you supposed to go back and become circumcised and decorate yourself with all the trappings of Judaism? 
Then finally he begins to say in verse 22, The Scripture has concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. And a little later on he said, verse 24, The law was our schoolmaster, that is the book of the law, the law that basically was enlarged upon by the Talmudic Jews, to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith, but after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. You are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you, and the Galatians were a mixed lot, as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free, because slavery was still in vogue during those days. There is neither male nor female. And that is really cutting it fine. That's saying we're all one. You don't even look at, at a female or a male having some different status before God. There is no such thing as a different status before God. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, and this church believes that applying to black people, to Filipino people, to Syrians, to Bedouin Arabs, to Vietnamese, it doesn't matter who they are. Then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Our brethren in Jamaica are heirs according to the promise exactly as we are, no matter the color of our skin. I won't take time to read all of Romans 11 because it is quite lengthy. You can read that later on. But it's talking about the fact that the Gentiles were grafted in and that they are the wild olive tree. The time is going to come when Almighty God is going to sort all of this out in the millennium. It is not the responsibility of the Church of God to be the final word on every last little bit of history with regard to the overspreading of the world by the nations this side of the Tower of Babel. We are not walking encyclopedias that are supposed to go around telling everybody who they are, what their racial origins are, and where they belong. We are just like Peter at Cornelius' house, sent to whomsoever Almighty God sends us by way of invitation, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. I am preaching it over radio in Jamaica. Very shortly, I will begin making programs, brand new ones, to reach a new station we have now begun uh, to find an outlet over that will reach a great deal of Europe. And I'm going to be making at least three brand new radio programs every single week to reach people in Holland and Belgium and northern France and Britain and Denmark and some of those countries over there. There are people of totally different ethnic backgrounds. And nearly always you look in the New Testament at the experience that Paul had in the apostles. And who was it who had the greatest love, the greatest capacity for repentance and therefore to accept forgiveness, the greatest zeal for God, less arguments, and who accepted the truth of God with such alacrity? It was not the Jews. God's Word says he came unto his own and his own received him not. And how the Apostle Paul had to say after repeated conflict with the Jews, well, from henceforth I turn to the Gentiles. And it was the kind of people I've described to you, Jamaicans, Filipinos, and others, who can put many of us white Americans to shame with the tremendous breadth and the depth of their love and their conversion in Christ.